Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with a uh, interview with Kerry King. He's a professor researcher at University of Texas in Austin, and we've had him on a couple of times to talk about his work around modeling uh, economic systems and around energy and what it means for a clean energy revolution. So uh, he's got a new book out. Um, the economic superorganism. So we're going to talk about that and some of the other information that he's developed uh, in the meantime. And and clearly we're in a uh, a new environment with COVID and what that's done to the economy. So, Kerry, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Thank you very much, Jim. It's good to good to be with you again. Awesome. So again, just fill us in with a little bit about your background. How did you get into working? Because you're actually you're a geologist, right? No, I'm a trained, educated as mechanical engineer. Mechanical engineer. So the whole work around economics, how did you get involved in working around economics? Right, so my graduate studies had uh, pretty much nothing to do with economics, but um, when I was getting out of graduate school, you know, a lot of things were changing in energy system, particularly here in Texas with the new wholesale electricity market and, you know, wind power was starting to be installed. And I was, you know, wondering why there was so much, you know, disagreement on, you know, wind is cheap enough now to do and it's a good idea. And then other people would say, no, it's not, it's expensive and we shouldn't be doing it. And I was like, okay, well, how, you know, how can there be so much disagreement on uh, what seems like a fairly well-defined, you know, piece of machinery uh, in the sense of how it actually works. And, how it'll get integrated into, into the grid, at least when it's the first wind farms, it's, you know, it's relatively easy to integrate into the grid. And so the more I started looking into that, I was like, okay, how do people compare energy technologies? Obviously compare them on cost. And, but I started investigating more, you know, engineering or life cycle assessment type analyses. And they would look at this concept of net energy or energy return on investment. Like how much energy does it take to make a wind turbine and install it? relative to how much energy it produces over its lifetime. And so there are studies on different technologies and oil and gas sector and coal. And so I looked at this and I said, okay, well, this seems pretty useful um, and it should be informative. And then I look around, was looking around and thinking, well, um, this just doesn't seem to be getting used at all to inform economic modeling. And I was like, well, is there some flaw in this method? Um, how do we, you know, how do we think about that? Can I, can we blend these things together? And so I started looking more into, okay, well, how do, how do economic models work? What are the assumptions that go into say macroeconomic growth models, which are, you know, models that try to say, if you, if you do these things, here's how the economy grows in the GDP sense of the word. And the more I looked into that, uh, I started to understand that there's not very much of an explicit description of energy in the sense that an engineer or physicist would think about it. There's no explicit description of conversion efficiencies. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, uh, that became sort of my initial foray to look further into what people were doing. And, and I found out, okay, people have been looking in to this type of thinking and how it relates to economic modeling. And along that pathway, um, I, you know, I, I knew of, but I guess I didn't really explore in detail say what was called the world three model, um, which was the mathematical model behind the limits to growth book from 1972, the original one. And this created a lot of fanfare, uh, people that liked the book and what it was saying and people that didn't like the book and thought it had flawed methods. Uh, my current book, yeah, the economic superorganism uh, discusses a little bit of that history, summarizes it some, but one of the, um, important takeaways of people looking at the original results of the this World 3 model, again, from the early 1970s, is that the, it, it was a global model. It's very general, uh, tracking things like population and generically, you know, resource extraction or fossil resource extraction, uh, food production, generically services provided to the economy. So it, it's very general. It ignores a lot of, you know, real world things we want to know about, like employment or uh, it doesn't track money specifically, things like debt. But what it did do, um, it, it, in my view and in view of others, it did relatively well. Um, it has the right structure, a sort of nonlinear structure uh, that creates feedbacks that 
uh, prevent exponential growth uh, going on forever, which is what their initial study was about. And one of the particular features in there is when they're talking about extracting resources from the environment, they have the concept that as you deplete the resource, it gets in some sense harder and harder to extract the next bit of it. You need more and more capital. And so while they think about capital as sort of a uh, quasi-physical uh, monetary thing, they don't track money, but it's uh, sort of generically described in the model, you know, as you deplete non-renewables, you'll have to use, allocate more capital to that purpose. And then the economy effectively can't operate without extracting resources from the environment, right? So that's kind of a, a key thing in my modeling as well, uh, that people in ecological economics or biophysical economics take to heart, which is, you know, the economy is this entity that extracts resources from the environment. It sort of converts these resources into stuff, uh, phones, computers, cars, whatever. And in order to do that, it has to consume energy, uh, which it also has to extract from the environment. So this feedback that was in the World 3 model uh, is essentially the same concept as this energy return on investment or this net energy feedback. And that is one of the, in my mind, important feedbacks to have in a macroeconomic growth model that essentially prevents you from growing forever. And just to, a, just to step out of like the modeling for a second, you can see that in the reality of what's happened with fracking and with the increased expenses that go along with trying to extract more energy and having to put in more capital um, with what's gone on over the past 10 years and how cost intensive it's been for fossil fuel companies to to try to do that on a ongoing basis. Right, and it's hard to appreciate, I guess, the differences of going after different resources, let's just say in geologic resources like hydrocarbons, uh, given the long time frame. But let's just say, yeah, something like spindle top in you know, 1901 and an oil gusher where you drill, I can't remember how many feet, just a couple hundred feet, and it's a gusher for for a couple of weeks with, you know, 100,000 100, barrels coming out per day or something like this versus a hydraulic fractured well, which gets much, much lower flow rates um, and still that are depleted over maybe the, the first three or four years. And then you can go even further and say, okay, how much energy does it take to extract oil sands in the capital of that? And that's even in some sense uh, has a lower energy return on investment and it has a higher cost. So these things are related just means that there's a physical way to think about the, mm -hmm. something that can affect cost feedbacks, at least on a very broad scale, as opposed to only thinking about prices and not thinking about the physical nature of how the cost of energy is derived. Yeah, so the hydraulic fracturing uh, and, and tight sands formations and, and fracking is, yeah, we're definitely going after harder to reach resources. Technology definitely improved to enable that, uh, but, but it still requires more capital than it did in the past. So when you look at the model that, you're, that you've been developing, like one of the things that is really interesting is how you connect it to um, uh, income of consumers and what that means in terms of the health of the economy. Can you go into a little bit of that? I can go, yeah, a little detail. So the modeling work I've done right now is pretty generic, which as me as a modeler is okay. I can understand the, the nuances and the abstract nature of it. But, you know, the, the point is to, yeah, to blend physical concepts and make them consistent with monetary concepts that we have in, in the modern economy and to do that, you know, coherently within the same framework. So that was my real goal. And I now, before I talk a little bit about how that works, I'll, I'll summarize, I, I've got some new funding that I'll go over the, the next three years where I have a, I'll have a postdoc working on it continuously with me from the VCAN Rasmussen Foundation. And it's really about studying the petrochemical sector and greenhouse gases and the idea of recycling and a circular economy for plastics. But, but our job is to sort of put that into the context of uh, macroeconomic pressures. Uh, so most of the work will be engineers and scientists and uh, working on chemical engineering details. And then we're gonna try to take those chemical engineering details in, into uh, the macro framework that I'm going to now summarize again. So the, the basic idea of the modeling 
is that extract resources and these have to get allocated. However much you're extracting at any one time, it's got to get allocated amongst a few major uh, flows, I guess, if you will. Uh, one is that whatever machines you have, some of the resources are basically fuel to run the machines. Um, some proportion of the resources you extract goes to make new machines, like machines are made out of stuff that comes from the environment. And third, some of the resources you extract go to consumers, as you're saying, people, households. Uh, at one level, that's pretty, that's very basic, such as you need food to eat and survive. At another level, it can be yeah, consumer goods, uh, and, you know, electricity consumption at my house. Um, <clears throat> so the model takes the physical quantities and has, uh, you know, assumptions for allocating those, and those get translated to monetary flows. So whenever you have a restriction, let's just say to households, if you are trying to allocate more and more capital and more and more energy to the extraction sector, it takes away sort of by definition from, or it can take away from the allocation to households. Since they're having a, slow, a smaller physical allocation, they have a smaller uh, monetary allocation as well that derives from that. And so they'll have less spending power. And, uh, perhaps I, my model isn't accumulating debt for households, but that's a future. Um, but it is deflationary. It, it does end up basically creating less wealth for, you know, families or with the consumer segment of the economy. Right. So the one thing my bottle does have the, the concept of debt, it's just not specifically consumers, it's more of debt for the companies. Mm -hmm. And as the companies are investing more, uh, let's just say they continue their investing practices um, before there's a resource flow constraint or energy flow constraint. But then afterwards, if resources are a little bit more constrained, they keep investing. They're not going to get the same. They're not getting the same monetary or energy returns from that investment, and they'll accumulate debt, say relative to profits or relative to GDP, and that yeah creates this deflationary uh, effect that you uh, are indicating, at least in my modeling, it it will take away uh, essentially uh, spending power of of consumers, and that is so this structural change. Uh, structural change, I mean, let's just say declining wage share or de declining incomes or stagnant incomes, which we've observed in much of yeah. the Western world since the 70s, you know, that's a structural change. So while the economy, let's just say GDP, keeps growing, it's growing in the face of this different structural change since the 70s versus before. And, and as you're mentioning, that is a deflationary effect on prices. And so that's why we don't see inflating prices, even if we're going to harder to reach resources, because we're essentially taking away spending power of, at least in the Western world, it's not the same in uh, China and places that are still expanding, but they're, they're expanding and they're still at a lower level of consumption. Yeah, I mean, uh, over the past 10 years, it's been called by economists the great stagnation. You know, that the fact that wages are not expanding, um, that income equality is worsening and Meanwhile, um, as you're describing in your with your model, companies, corporations, especially you know energy corporations, are basically loading up on debt in order to try to generate that last bit of energy, um, last bit of profit that they can. But that overhang of debt is really a an albatross around the neck of the economy. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a, uh, a catch-22, uh, perhaps situation, albatross, paradox, I don't know what. But um, if there is, let's just say the economy is, let's just take the stagnation argument for, for Western, Western economies. Okay, if you're a person like me and, and I'm thinking, okay, is, is the flow of energy uh, responsible the availability and cost of energy somehow responsible for this stagnation um, because of very long-term effects. And if it is, what you would expect is that the economy would naturally respond and think, well, what's trying to find out the right investment to make to, to you know, alleviate whatever the stagnating effect is. And if energy is, then that'll start migrating towards the energy sector because, I mean, we actually, you have to have the energy flows to run machines and to, to do things in the economy. And if it starts allocating there, but it just, not getting the returns it used to get uh, from the sector, then you, yeah, you would expect this accumulation of debt. And in some sense, 
you know, my thinking is, well, you maybe can't avoid this. Um, you, if you're having trouble growing, you need resources to grow. Uh, so you go invest in the resource sector, but if it's not as productive as it used to be, you'll accumulate debt where you wouldn't have expected it, but you don't have another option. You can't take away resources from the extraction sector because then you, then you, then you still don't have energy. So, so this is this really is a fundamental constraint and and or a fundamental thing that we have to think about. It's a and, bottleneck. It's a yeah, bottleneck and, that we have to push through. So the question then becomes, well, how do we break through the bottleneck to develop a new source of energy that instead of being constrictive to the economy is actually expansive? I mean, has have you looked into that in terms of part of your modeling or is that like down down the road in terms of other stages? Yeah, it's certainly the goal, but it's in other stages in terms of making realistic comparisons between uh, renewables and fossil fuels, um, mm -hmm. something like that. So it's definitely the, you know, the long-term or medium-term goal of the research. And hopefully eh, in, in a year or two, I'll hopefully have something uh, a bit more to say on that. But on that notion, the, you know, the subtitle to the book is Beyond the Competing Narratives on Energy Growth and Policy. So so much of the book is about explaining, here's things you might hear in the news or hear from a government report or mm -hmm. something like this. And here's what it says about going to more renewables or staying on fossil fuels or going to low carbon, you know, whatever the, the, the report might be saying. And generally my book is trying to explain these, whenever somebody says this, they're using insights from economic models and these economic models are to a large degree not capable of actually answering the questions that it appears as though they're answering. Just, just don't have the right uh, incorporation of the concept of energy somewhat as we've been describing. So everything always looks possible. Um, and so this is why a politician would say, of course we can do this, we can invest in, let's just say, you know, go, go zero carbon economy in 30 years and the economy grows. Um, this may or may not be the case. I'm, I'm skeptical and it doesn't have anything to do with it. That it, I still think we should do something about climate change. I just don't necessarily expect it to be a economic boom. It might be in the short term, but you're building up debt. So I think this is the, this is the catch. You're definitely gonna have a lot of investment, a lot of jobs, uh, these kinds of things, but it's jobs in the energy system as opposed to the energy extraction part of the economy, as opposed to the rest of the economy. And I, and, at the time, at the moment, I'm convinced that you have to make this distinction because, you know, if, if the size of the energy sector uh, monetarily or how much, what fraction of all energy it's consuming or what fraction of all wages go, whatever way you want to measure the size of the energy sector, would expect it to go up during a rapid transition. There's more materials flowing there, more money being spent, more wages being paid and more credit probably being created and, uh, debt increasing to to pay back over time mm -hmm. well one of the one of the keys to paying off debt is really to have effective long-term growth and i would assume part of that long-term growth would be the improvement of technology over time like for example i mean just in the past i would say 10 years the improvement of solar technology has improved by leaps and bounds um, by many, you know, uh, what would you say? Uh, orders of magnitude. Or, yeah, orders of magnitude. Yeah, exactly. it's declined quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. So the cost has gone down. The efficiency has greatly improved and the distribution to the overall economy has improved. So I would think that as you have whether it's wind or solar or battery storage technology, these these other these other tools in the energy toolkit, that over time, that improvement in terms of the that that dividend would flow back to the overall economy, to people, to wage growth, and so forth. Is that? Is that a valid hypothesis, you think? I, yeah, if I'm following you, I think I agree with your hypothesis and I'll state it as this way, that in the short term, I could expect, let's just say, this is the difficulty, 
incorporating the, the concept of debt, I could expect that the economy might not grow or that the non-energy part of the economy might even shrink during the transition. Let's just say if you do it, if you're trying for some 2050 or 2060 target, you might have one or even two decades of shrinking rest of the economy versus the energy part of the economy. But then on the back side of it, you would expect, okay, I've made this upfront investment. And now I'm just kind of maintaining things. I'm replacing some parts. It's, it's not as much of a, uh, it's not as large of an investment. And then you would get those benefits. And from a, yeah, I guess political perspective, that's, that's too long for people to see the results <laughs> of a, of an investment. But I think that's kind of the, the time frame you actually have to evaluate it on. I think, you know, you're evaluating some push towards low carbon energy. If you're really doing it quickly, evaluating on the span of four years or less is, is just probably too late of a, or too short of a span to evaluate it on. And so that's what I'm, in some sense, oh, I'll use the word afraid. I don't know afraid's the right word, but that's say proponents of a, a low carbon transition will just say, no, everything's going to be great from the beginning through the whole time. And and I'm kind of not so sure, doesn't mean there are not benefits in the long term. We certainly are. I mean, this, the whole point is that we're trying to perceive an insurance policy, uh, engage in an insurance policy, if you will, and have a good long-term outcome with some short-term change. And uh, I'm interested in understanding the short-term change because that'll affect if people change their minds on what they want to do. So if I have more accurate modeling that says, no, you should definitely expect some short-term pain for some long-term gain. So when you're experiencing it, don't don't freak out, don't be surprised. Just this is what we could expect. Well, um, and and to go to that point, um, I mean, you look at the economic effects of COVID over the past eight months, and the effect that it's had in terms of the economy, in terms of the initial drawdown in terms of what it did to the economy, but then the behavioral changes that continue to play a role. I mean, uh, I think the figure was 90 or 95% of workers in New York who work in offices do not expect to be back in their office by the end of the year. Um, I mean, there's when you see that, and that has had a, a direct effect on the energy budget for the country. You know, there's been a lot less um, in terms of electricity, a lot less in terms of obviously transportation going in and out of different uh, cities or going back and forth to work. And going into, I would imagine the uh, winter, you know, it'll affect fuel costs for heating oil um, being, you know, less heating oil required for those types of large buildings. Um, I mean, those are, those are some of the changes that I would imagine, this is kind of, a, to me, this is kind of a test run of adapting an economies to some sort of larger behavioral shift that we need to do in what you're talking about in terms of transforming the economy from fossil fuel to something more of a circular economy. Right, and what you're kind of hinting at is the the you know the question, the debate on yeah, to achieve low carbon goals, do you have to actually consume less or conserve and whatever we're consuming? And COVID is this you know external shock, not uh, not anticipated. That's basically said, okay, you you can't go out and do all these discretionary things you used to do. Those are just not happening. And then it you know even going into offices, which would not have been considered discretionary. So yeah, there's a, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers in detail, but yeah, an uptick in residential consumption, people are home more, a downtick in commercial electricity consumption, whether these are, you know, slightly offsetting each other. But you certainly have things like, you know, movie theaters. Maybe someone would have put movie theaters uh, in, in, on the decline even before COVID just from the standpoint of online streaming and mm -hmm. better sound systems in people's houses and these kinds of things. So they're in, in restaurants, right? I mean, there's, you know, coming out of World War II, I, I can't remember the exact statistics, but let's just say it was a very small percentage of meals that were eaten in restaurants. <laughs> and then now there's, I don't know what the percentage is, it's some, if it's over 50% or something like this of meals that were eaten in restaurants before COVID, you know, you don't have to eat in a restaurant to survive. Uh, I think some other statistics on news was, you know, the amount of alcohol being consumed is the same now. It's just not being consumed in bars. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so the, the other the other yeah. thing that it, it it affects 
the labor force, right? Because uh, a great deal, the, the people who were most affected e economically by what happened with what happened with COVID and what continues to happen are people who um, are in those service industries and maybe don't have the background to, you know, get a more technical job. Um, maybe they haven't gone to college or they just got out of college and they're still trying to get a foothold in, you know, real world. Um, but also uh, women and minorities have been disproportionately affected. So, you know, that has social impacts down the road in terms of, you know, income and in terms of the development of wealth. So these are all ripples of this rock that was dropped in the middle of the economy. Right. And, you know, in the, in the book and, Chapter five, I sort of make these analogs to uh, the biological world in terms of how the economy is structured. So essentially we're sort of debating at, at a simple level, two things. Um, what is the size of the economy? Do we want it to be bigger, smaller, you know, GDP, something like this. And then what's the structure of the economy, which is by that, I only mean just distribution of stuff, distribution of money to people, uh, distribution of energy. Some of the, we're more in charge of distribution, I think, than size. Like to say, I don't know how big the economy is going to be in the future or how much energy we're going to consume, but we could make tax laws and rules and such that whatever is being produced, it could be distributed. We kind of understand that sort of how to distribute it in a, in a, in a way that's uh, some, somewhat feasible and more equal, although it can't be in, probably can't be entirely equal. And I get into that in a, a little bit in the book. And it's, let's just say one example is that the um, sort of correlation in patterns with ant colonies, for example. And if you look at data, say since you know 1970 for the global economy, if, you in, if GDP increases or historically as GDP increases, let's just say you know, uh, 10 units or gets 10 times bigger, the energy consumption for the economy doesn't go up 10 times. It goes up less than 10 times. And so this is what people would look at and say, this is declining energy intensity or declining energy divided by GDP. As if that's some sort of a, like a target that we decided to implement. And the more you look at this and you think, well, it just doesn't look like something we consciously did. It seems like more of a reaction to the realities of our situation with the um, you know energy supply of our environment and how we're reacting to that. So the same thing is animals follow this similar pattern and ant colonies or groups of animals follow this similar pattern, which is to say, as their mass gets bigger, if they're a mature animal or ant colony, as their mass gets bigger, they don't consume more energy at the same increasing rate as their mass. So they, it's what we would call a sublinear scaling law. If the size of the colony goes up 10 times, the size of its energy consumption goes up less than 10 times. So this is, I believe, related to actual, you know, having to distribute energy and mass and materials among the constituent parts and the cost of extracting them from the environment. The and challenge, the challenge in, in that for human beings is in the United States, there's, you're at one stage of development and in South America or someplace else, you're at a, a different stage of development. And so the rates of, the rates of increase are, are differ from place to place. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, I'll stick on just say something like the US or Europeans as, as a context for here. And this is, yeah, I, I don't have the definitive answer here, but there's some interesting things that are in some of the literature I summarized for about ant colonies. So let's just say they get bigger to some extent, which means on average each ant, if you will, is literally consumed as you accumulate another ant in the colony, the, the average energy consumption by an ant goes down. So that means that you have two, at least two categories of choices, which is to say the next ant that's, that's born or hatched, uh, it, what it does is some task that requires less energy than the previous task. It's a smaller ant or it just does something different. Um, the other option, which seems to 
which is hinted in some of the literature as well, is that some ants just stop doing as much as they used to be doing. So let's just say if you're like a soldier ant at the big early stage of an ant colony and you're there defending the ant colony, once it gets established, you don't have to do as much defending. And so you just mm. kind of sit around. And if, if an emergency comes, then you get triggered into action or then you go help find food. You know, the ants don't just do one thing. They can change their tasks. So literally some ants just start sitting around more. And, you know, we have to think, you know, you think about it like this, is there someone telling them to do this? Why aren't they doing this? You know, what, there's no, there's no market economy. They're, 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 they're responding basically to energetic constraints, but unconsciously, I mean, we can imagine. So I don't anticipate that, you know, we, we can think, hey, is this is a similar thing happening to the US? I mean, I guess we're sitting in our rooms more <laughs> and not driving around as much uh, due to something like COVID, but that's not a, a purely energetic thing. Um, but the main point here is just to say that the allocation of resources, or let's just say the energy consumption for each type of ant is not equal uh, in an ant colony. Uh, there's it, perhaps, I, I don't see any evidence to think that we should expect exact equality to occur. And I quote other things in the book, sort of statistical type analysis, looking at other physical principles that sort of say, oh yeah, yeah, even, even with just perfectly equal rules, which is just say, um, people bouncing into each other and randomly exchanging money. Like I bump into you and I give you a dollar. Uh, so I've got $1 less and you've got $1 more. And then we roll the dice again and you bump into somebody else and they give you a dollar again and they lose a dollar, but I bump into somebody else and I now get a dollar from them and uh, give a dollar. So you just run this over and over and over. It's just some work by Victor Yakovenko that I quote and others have done similar things. If you just assume everybody starts with the same amount of money and then randomly bounces into each other, you get an unequal distribution of wealth and this unequal distribution of wealth follows the same physical principles or the pat the same pattern you get from just thinking about air molecules in a box bouncing mm -hmm. into each other exchanging energy so there's some insight i think into saying okay here's why you wouldn't expect a fully equal let's just say distribution of wealth in society even if the rules were per perfectly neutral um, this is a very simple mathematical game and there's, there's no taxes on wealth or income or anything. It's just a st stupid little bouncing together game. Um, with, so with that being said, the historical, let's just say the US had very low polarization and relatively high income inequality in the three decades after World War II. And you were closer to this kind of level suggested by this uh, mathematical statistical relationship. So you don't have to get you know, like a fully equal society, like everybody owns the same amount of stuff or has the same income to have a, it doesn't seem to me that you have to get to that stage to have a, you know, a coherent and a society that, you know, kind of generally gets along. Um, so, so the discussions of, you know, uh, inequality, I think can be informed by kind of, you know, energetic or, or physical principles. Um, we know how to get, you know, more equal, you know, if, uh, other these similar studies look at, okay, how do we get these other SKUs like, you know, the top 10% or top 1% accumulating so much more wealth? And you're like, yeah, okay, it's because of the tax code. And you're like, yeah, that, I mean, that's a skewing of this molecules bouncing into each other equally. You've now skewed it so that <laughs> some molecules are just, you know, essentially getting, take, more, yeah. getting more temperature just because they're hot, right? Oh, I have more money. I get money just because I have money. And that's a different thing. And it's, uh, I'd say we understand that from both a economic standpoint and from a physical standpoint. So, so we know how to make it more equal for whatever, even if we're not consuming more energy, we know how to make the, the money distribution more equal and, and we can choose to focus on that. Hmm. What, um, you know, one of the things that has occurred in, uh, in 2018, the UN basically said that we have effectively 12 years to um, get to carbon neutral and clearly even bef before COVID, we still saw fossil fuel consumption growing at a pretty good clip, at least one or 2%, um, globally. Um, how do we, how do we meet that that time frame, given you know the the current environment, I mean, is it just a political solution that's required in order to kind of 
mandate uh, different um, a different direction of policy? Yeah, so um, I think I'll have a, a semi-long <clears throat> semi answer discussion here on this. But that, yeah, that's kind of, a, you know, one of the ultimate questions. And in the book, I touch on, yeah, the concept of political will. Like, if we just have the political will to go low carbon. And, you know, as I think about that, I think, well, there's, there's not just one target. There's not just one goal out there. There's, you have political will for better health care or better education or, you know, better jobs for more people, uh, et cetera. So it's hard to know that the reason something doesn't happen is because there was lack of political will. It's just not that specific to know. Um, but in writing the book, I didn't anticipate going into what I'm going to describe. I got a bit more philosophical in thinking about, you know, why does, why do we see these patterns in the economy that I kind of described that are comparable to animals and ants? Um, and if you look at these patterns and you make, and you look at them and you think, well, these are similar patterns to what animals and ant colonies that we think do not have any policies and laws. They're not governing how they operate. And you're like, okay, well, if we're following similar patterns, are we really making policies and laws that are independent choices to do what we want? Or are we being dictated by factors that we don't fully understand? And you look into it and there's, you know, there's a lot of literature on these topics. They get a little more philosophical, but people in ecology have, have thought about these. Um, for example, Howard Odom, who was an ecologist who thought about you know, ecological systems and how they're organized and hierarchies and numbers of different species and how they interact. And he tried to apply the same principles to think about the economy. And he has a quote, something to, to the effect of, you know, a system can't understand itself. Um, if we were to, that's, that's almost the same thing as saying every model we make of the economy is a simplification of what the economy is. We can't make a model that's exactly the economy without just replicating <laughs> the economy itself. Mm -hmm. um, and this gets into artificial intelligence and all kinds of stuff that people are like, okay, how do we even know what's going on? But here's one way that I think is useful. It's, it's not necessarily empowering to people, but I think thinking about this helps us understand what our limitations are. And if we don't understand these limitations, then we're gonna make choices that have outcomes that we don't anticipate. Yeah. So, so the notion from ecologist, so Alfred Lotka in the 1920s wrote about this and then Howard Odom expanded on it as well. And it, essentially what became known as the maximum power principle, uh, which they said, okay, uh, uh, organisms that consume more resources at a higher rate within an ecosystem will tend to be more fit. Like they'll tend to survive more because you ate more food and you survived to uh, the age of reproduction and you mature. And then you're able to feed these resources to your young and then they could survive more easily. So if you consume more resources, you tend to survive more easily. And therefore you're technically, you know, more fit in the natural selection sense and your genes will be passed on. So that in some sense, natural selection favors organisms that consume energy at a higher rate than versus those that don't. And, you know, economists and, and, and the ecologists are trying to make these parallels to the economy. And you can kind of think these parallels from biological systems to uh, economic systems as the follows, three main levels. First level is genes. Like we have a genetic code of, uh, and DNA for biological systems. And the similar concept is memes. And in fact, the word meme uh, from Richard Dawkins and his Selfish Gene book from 1976 was, was derived to rhyme with gene. Uh, a meme is essentially an idea that replicates itself just like a gene replicates itself. So memes and, are basically the same thing as technology, like how do you do something? Um, organisms and biology, like an animal, is kind of like a company in the sense that any given company can use multiple types of technologies or multiple types of memes, just like any organisms have the same genes. Like, like what is the kind of standard quote that I, I hopefully or assume is true that a banana has, we have like 50% of the same genes as a banana. You know, nobody's confusing us with a banana. Uh, but the idea of just forming cells and the gene codes that it takes to form cells is, is behind some of that. So the first two levels are genes translating to memes, organisms translating to, econ or to companies. And then at the highest level, you can think ecosystems. And ecosystems might translate to a country economy or the world economy. And the economies are composed of multiple companies. Ecosystems are composed of multiple types of organisms. And they all have this 
this kind of relationship. So with that being said, if, if somehow biological organisms are favored that consume more power, are companies that promote the consumption of more power also favored in an economic natural selection sense of the word, minimizing costs. Minimizing costs is similar to saying, I'm gonna maximize efficiency. And if you maximize efficiency, that's like doing more work on the environment. I take some resources in and I do more work. And the cheaper I can make that work, the more resources I can afford to extract and then, and then do more work, make more things, uh, do more activity. So the question on carbon emissions is we're saying, uh, if you take this approach, you could say, well, the a purpose of the economy seems to be to maximize the average weight of useful work output because focusing on markets and lower marginal costs and all that, that's, that's where it has led so far. That's where it's led us so far for, since we've been you know, really doing markets. And so if you're gonna fight that, do you really have to say, well, here's these options we have. I've got these hundred options of things to invest in. And um, if I want to reduce carbon emissions, I'm gonna have to, do I have to knock some of those options off the table, right? As opposed to say, not putting restriction on those options. And I think that's the hard part of what we're discussing. From my perspective, there are these pressures. Most of us aren't consciously thinking about them, uh, but, but they seem to be there in my view. And without recognizing this kind of evolutionary type pressure, um, you're going to think obviously that it's not there if you don't recognize it and you're gonna be making decisions thinking that you know this effect isn't gonna happen. But if we recognize this then you would say, okay, well, I've got to put some specific constraints or, or barriers to prevent this from occurring. Um, I've heard one example at this, this is similar to something, say the Jevons paradox, right? As you get more efficient at doing something, you lower the cost and then it enables you to do more things in the future. Um, when he was talking about coal extraction in 1800s. And there's one colleague at a university in, in the upper Midwest, and he says they have some a campus efficiency fund or something like this, where they try to, yeah, increase the efficiency of their boilers and heating uh, on the campus. And whatever money they save, they have already mandated that this money is not allowed to do anything else on the campus except go into another energy efficiency uh, project, which is to say it can't go to build another building or it can't go to, you know, enhance, uh, make a new pool or something like this, which would be an expansion of energy consumption. Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of putting a restriction that says, well, we're going to get more efficient, but the whole point is to just conserve or minimize consumption of energy on campus period and not actually expand any other activity, at least from that funding. So they, that would be a recognition of this effect and then trying to do something about it. it can we do that on the grand scale? Uh, that's the question. Well, and again, I, I think that gets to, like you said, tax policy. You know, what do we actually pass in terms of legislation to drive in terms of behavior? Um, when you were first talking about that idea, I mean, and to me, what you were describing was social Darwinism, you know, basically the, the strong beating out the weak and, you know, the consumption or the, uh, those with the, the most energy being the most important or the, the drivers. Um, but what I got at the end and what I was thinking in my head was, you know, the key isn't having the maximum amount of energy, but it's to have energy at the most efficient rate of production. I mean, would you agree with that as being what's, what's critical to, to kind of understand? Uh, so, yeah, so I'll go back and just make sure, yeah, I'm not talking about, nor am I trying to promote something like social Darwinism. There's all kinds of reasons why people aren't getting the same initial opportunities to succeed versus others. But on your idea of, yeah, is it about the most energy or most production? So this gets into the idea of what us in this, in this field kind of, we call useful work. And if you're really nerdy, you call it useful exergy. But this is, so just focus on the work. So from thermodynamics, you would say, I've got some energy resource. Um, I feed this energy um, resource into a machine. It converts some of that energy into work and some of it into heat. And as you're implying, it's the work output that translates to economic outcomes, mm -hmm. um, GDP, wages, anything. It's, it's, that's the work. Uh, so really, yes, you are just, that's a more accurate way to look at economic relationships. So I, I, I discussed that if you have um, globally um, or even 
well, let's just say for the US, because uh, it's been studied in this manner, that one more unit of useful work translates to one more unit of GDP, but one more unit of primary energy does not translate uh, to one more unit of GDP. There's, you know, GDP is increasing faster than the unit of primary energy, but GDP is, doesn't seem to be increasing faster than the quantity of useful work. Uh, so it's a, it's a more consistent way to think about what the economy is trying to do. And that's why in the book, I, I essentially put this hypothesis proposal for people to think about. It's not necessarily, you know, I'm just explicitly stating it. Other people have stated it. But yeah, is the purpose of the economy uh, to do more useful work? That's different than saying, is the purpose of the economy to extract more primary energy? That <clears throat> You're making that distinction and that's a, a good, important distinction. Uh, you can extract the same amount of primary energy, but if you're getting more efficient, you're, you're doing more work. Um, and there, in, in some sense, I guess, should be an equivalent, uh, well, there might not be an, an exactly equivalent environmental impact uh, uh, for that. Let's just, because um, there's there's impact for doing work and impact from extracting resources. So it could, it could go both ways. You know, one of the, um, in, in thinking about this, it reminds me of a, uh, before the uh, the pandemic, they had the uh, conference in Davos, Switzerland, for the uh, World Economic Forum, and one of the um, one of the interesting aspects was on. And I, typically, I watch it on Bloomberg. And on Bloomberg, I remember they had the uh, CEO of a large fossil fuel company, and I won't tag the company, but. One of the one of the notable things about this particular Davos, and I've watched plenty of them, is its concentration on climate change and what needs to be done to address climate change. And when you listen to this CEO talk, you know it's all about becoming more efficient, uh, focusing on you know green energy and getting out of fossil fuels. And and I mean this is a large fossil fuel company, so. It was pretty uh, progressive thinking. What was interesting is literally a half hour later, he was on an interview on CNBC, basically saying, you know, screw green energy, we're fossil fuel and we love it and we're proud. And basically just tossing whatever he said 30 minutes before out the window and carrying you know, the, the stated line of what fossil fuel companies have done for the past, you know, 100 years. And, you know, as a, as a financial advisor, you look at this and you're like, they say there's greenwashing, obviously, that they say that they get it, that they understand that they have to, that things are changing and they need to change. And then literally they go and they, prove you wrong, you know, that, you know, they, they just don't get it. Um, so, you know, if we're waiting for, you know, companies or corporate America to kind of effect this or direct this line of thinking, I think we're, it's a fool's errand to be waiting on that, you know. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, I under understand your point. I guess, you know, I only touched slightly in the book in the, the, the chapter nine on, you know, these, I guess, other pressures to, you know, things like divestment, things that you as a, as a financial analyst have to, to think about, yeah, what is your mix or your portfolio and whether, uh, yeah, whether it's beneficial or you can get out of fossil fuel companies or whatever. Uh, but as you're saying, you know, I think people like me are <laughs> looking looking at people at you that focus more on this in your work is there is something that people say, uh, rhetoric or statements, and then you can look at, you know, where's the money actually flowing. And exactly. I guess enough of the, the populace has been saying, okay, uh, you've been saying some things for a while, but I can see your monetary flows are not indicative of your words and I'm you know that's closer to the truth right look at yeah. you got to look at the money flow that's a closer true action and uh, from my understanding I'm not sure how much you've looked at it you could comment uh, yeah so the European companies the Shell and the BPs are talking a bigger game than the American majors uh, and their financial flows are starting to shift that way although certainly slower than um, you know some advocates of climate um, mitigation would want um, but it seems like the rhetoric and the money allocations are 
maybe just in the last year or two, actually, at least for the European majors starting to go there. Now, are they big enough to affect the global system? You know, that's the argument for not doing it. It's like, okay, yeah, what do you, you're not influencing Saudi Arabia and Russia. Yeah. Uh, but hey, you know, it, you have to get started <laughs> somewhere. So you well, but the point, the point is if it's all about the efficiency of the energy produced contributing to the economic health of the society, the countries that become more efficient faster seize the high ground. I mean, that, that's in my mind where we need to go and in terms of thinking. Just like, for example, when in the 1800s, the first countries that, you know, were able to move from sail to steam and from steam to, to uh, fossil fuel power, you know, they were, they were the uh, leaders. They were the economic superpowers. And so when you talk about an economic superorganism, it's like, we have to, we have to set our priorities in a different way, obviously. All right. Well, I definitely agree that, you know, more efficiency in a, you know, thermodynamic sense translates to more economic growth. And I discuss in the book that what economists often call in their, within neoclassical theory, you know, total factor productivity, um, which is technically undefined in the theory, that corresponds with very well with changes in this useful work efficiency or the efficiency of converting fuels to, to work. It's, they're almost a one-to-one -one correlation. Hmm. So in some sense, that is technological progress. Now, the catch again is this feedback. And if you just end up consuming more, since I'm kind of a person who thinks, yeah, I think the finite earth impacts, uh, are impact is impacting us and will impact us into the future in terms of restraining um, our, our options. Yeah, you know, in the end, whenever, if you, you do get to this constraint or if you put a carbon constraint on yourself, yeah, you're gonna want to be the most efficient possible to get the most out of whatever you're uh, allowed to consume. So yeah, so I'm definitely, I'm definitely with that. You just have to counteract it with this, you know, carbon constraint. So uh, if you had a carbon price or, yeah, carbon constraint, then then people would say, oh yeah, I'm going to focus on efficiency a lot more, and mm -hmm. you know, fit under that constraint. So that's a generic umbrella, and it's not telling you, okay, there's technology A, B, and C that you can use, and technology E and D that you're not allowed to use. It says it would say, well, you can use that, but some of these are going to be more penalized than others. I mean, that's the debate we've been having for. I don't know, at least on, in earnest for 20 years now on how to add this carbon constraint and that we're not doing it yet, at, le we're at not least doing it yet, in the US or across the, even the Western world. And this whole economy as a super organism, at least as a framework to make you understand, here's why it might be difficult. Here's what this sort of inherent pressure is that might be uh, making it difficult for us to constrain ourselves. Uh, as as a global economy or even of large segments of the economy. And so in that sense, I, somebody might say, well, you're telling me it's hopeless. I'm like, well, I'm not telling you it's hopeless, but what I'm telling you, if you don't think about this inherent sort of evolutionary pressure, if you will, then you're, 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 you're probably missing a big piece of understanding how to form an actual solution. You're, you'll be making the wrong policies. You have to be aware in order to be informed. Yeah, yeah. So you just said it better than I did right there. <laughs> what um what now that you finished the book and i know it took a while to 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 put it all together bring it all together what was the what's the most surprising aspect that you what's the realization that you came to that was most surprising um i i think some of these things that i uh just just outlined about um whether you know i what I didn't anticipate was kind of making the book have a little bit of a philosophical tone to it. Mm. And that's where I kind of get into this, okay, what's, why is the superorganism? It's got some science backing, uh, but it also has this philosophical kind of take on, are we in charge of our decisions kind of a thing, free will. So you can end up having, going into discussions about, do we have individual free will about our choices? And I tried to think of ways to, to explain that. Um, I didn't think about, yeah, ended up going there in the book, but it, it made sense to me to do it. And there was some some work that's, well, I guess he's been working on it for over a decade that I, I referenced from Donald Hoffman, who's more of a, you know, neuro um, thinking about how, the, you know, the functionality of the brain and, uh, and fitness and artificial intelligence and these kinds of things. 
and he's done work that he said, okay, do you want the most accurate representation of the world around you? Let's just say if you're an animal and you experience things and you know your brain gets wired to recognize certain things, certain colors, smells, uh, and you figure out what's food and what's not food. You know, eat food, don't eat things that aren't food. And so you have some model of the world. Uh, how complicated can this model of the world be and, for, and for, to simultaneously have you be fit in an evolutionary sense? And so he's going through and he's like, well, it's not obvious that you want the most accurate model. And he calls it truth, but really I think it's the, a, a more accurate model. And because he says, well, it takes you more, it takes more time to do the computation about what's going on around you. And it takes more energy to do more computation, right? Uh, but if you have simple rules, like uh, if I see something green, I go away from it. You know, if I see something red, I go towards it. Or some simple rule, you don't know what green means. You don't know what red means. You're not thinking about it. You just go to red and go away from green. It's like these kinds of simple rules can be more fit in an evolutionary sense. So I try to make the parallel to the economy, which is to say I'm working on these economic models, which are uh, hard, to f hard for me to learn how to formulate, hard to describe, takes a while to, to describe to people. Uh, they're different than what's normally done. And uh, I would claim they're, they're more accurate representation of how the world functions. Yet maybe they're, you know, I open myself up to the idea that, well, maybe they're actually too complicated to catch on as a meme, to actually catch on and propagate as a concept. And things like markets and just set prices based on marginal costs is a much more simple concept and maybe that's why that catches on and why that's a meme and why we have wholesale markets. And maybe, maybe from an evolutionary sense, you can't beat that. Uh, you don't have to have a model of physics. You don't have to understand anything about physics, about nature, about biology, space. You don't have to actually understand natural and physical laws to operate within a market. And I, and I quote, you know, Friedrich Hayek, and he quotes another uh, scientist, uh, Whitehead, and uh, I put that quote in there. And, there, and this is from 1945, right? His Nobel Prize is for understanding distributed information processing effectively, that they're saying, hey, actually the point of the economy or the point of systems, setting up systems in the economy is, is actually to prevent people from thinking about what they're doing, to just get them, we have this thing, we call it the market, it generates prices. We don't fully understand how it generates these prices, but all you have to do is set this up and then people react to the price. It's like, you know, an animal, go to the light, go away from the light. You know, mm -hmm. it's the, the price and that's simple and people can react to it. And so when I started thinking about that, I was like, okay, I, you know, that, that, can, that, that can potentially sound quite scary. Is that the best way to organize society? I, I don't know, best has its own connotations of good and bad, but it's certainly a simple rule. And it's, it's so far, yeah, I haven't found a way to communicate what I'm doing as simply as that. <laughs> so well, when you, when you look at like what's going on in terms of um, sociology or human behavior and the impact of let's say marketing in terms of driving somebody to green or away from red, and in terms of having that, having ideologies built up in terms of their educational background for 20 years early on, you know, it's difficult then to break out of into, into seeing things in a new way. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see where people just naturally go towards what's easiest, but clearly it's, you're going towards what's easiest because that's in somebody else's best interest, you know, best economic interest for you to do that behavior. And the reality is we have to find a way to redefine what's in the best financial interest of the society, right? Right, so that's a, yeah, forward, you know, forward-looking proposition, and in, you know, evolution, in effect, there there is no forward-looking concept. There's just mutations that occur in genes, and those mutations make the animal more fit, or they don't. Mm -hmm. There's no thought about, I want to make this mutation because it's going to work out this way. There's just there, the concept's not even there. It it is actual randomness. So we're we're fighting that by saying, oh, well, we have some foresight now. We're an evolved organism and we've created this thing called the economy, which means that's an evolved thing. And uh, we have the ability to think ahead. Should, how much should we be thinking about thinking ahead? 
and that's mm -hmm. a to in some sense a, a totally new thing. What's interesting is again going back to COVID, look at how quickly people's behavior can change once you introduce a new environment for them to have to survive in. I mean, people's behavior changes radically, um, albeit with a lot of stress, a lot of um, economic anxiety, you know, being right. forced to go through this change. So, yeah, I, I mean, let's just say, I'll, generally just assume, yeah, COVID is, you know, like a disease, un, unpredicted disease that randomly pops up and we have to deal with it. So people look at it and say, okay, I don't think we'll get into people trying to blame for who's in charge of COVID, but let's just say, okay, well, nobody's necessarily to blame for COVID existing. Therefore, I will accept changes to my behavior because I don't think there's anybody to blame and no one's to blame. Therefore, everybody can kind of, you know, uh, everybody's not sacrificing equivalently exactly, but everybody's yeah. got to do something. Uh, for carbon emissions, you know, I guess maybe there's people trying to translate it the same way, but but effectively you could translate it the same way. Now we do know that let's just say human beings and activities is responsible. But if you think of us as just a product of evolution, you think, well, we weren't consciously trying to do that. We're not consciously trying to change the concentration of the atmosphere to make it less habitable for um, different species on the planet and this kind of thing. So in effect, nobody's to blame, right? And I, I quote uh, somebody who thinks about the superorganism uh, concept uh, a lot as well, Nate Hagens, and uh, some, some quote associated or similar to, you know, um, no one's really responsible for climate change, but we're all to blame. So collectively, our activities are doing this, but nobody's consciously saying, I want to make the world a bad place to live. Uh, that's, you know, that's not happening. So it's in, a, in effect, none of us is individually responsible, but we have to recognize, okay, here's this emergent concept, if you will, that we didn't anticipate. It's affecting the environment. We didn't know for most of our history. Uh, nobody's to blame. You know, are we going to deal with it? COVID, yeah. we're thinking, yeah, we want to deal with it because it's immediate. It's like, well, you might die in the next two weeks or three weeks and disease like that. This one is such a, a time delay. And, and the COVID example doesn't give really too much hope on this because let's just say in the U.S., you know, you make a decision on COVID like to restrict movement and, and seclude people in their houses, you see the effect of this two, three weeks down the road. Uh, you don't have to wait years or decades to see what the impact of your decision is. But climate change is this, we're gonna, we'd have to wait decades to see what the impact of our decisions are. So if we're not even capable of waiting weeks to figure out what our decisions yeah. are from a political standpoint, that is indicative to me of at least a way to describe uh, you know, how we need to approach climate. You're like, look, if you're going to have, you're, if you're debating about COVID, uh, your process of thinking is uh, already inept for thinking about climate change. But if you were, uh, yeah, so. And the, uh, yeah. and the reality is we have, you know, half the country that, you know, is resistant to social distancing and wearing masks, let's say, as far as a, a policy to, you know, protect people you know, how are you going to convey that larger issue over the longer term? It, it's, it's way more challenging, obviously. Yeah, obviously different, um, yeah, what are occupations and people working different jobs are affected if you're, yeah, restaurants and places where people have to gather to, uh, uh, for where you work. But I mean, since we shut all these things down, yeah, and there's less transportation, yeah, there's literally less work being done in the economy in a, in a thermodynamic sense, which means there's literally going to be less money floating around uh, in the general GDP sense. So this is to say that, okay, yeah, the government in some sense is stuck and says, yeah, you should just, you know, in some sense, print money and try to allocate it to people whose jobs are most affected. Nobody did this, um, you, you know, paying paying their rents, these kinds of things, you know, why should somebody who owns property and is renting it out always get their interest payments and their rent payments because of COVID, but, and people should get kicked out. Like nobody was in charge of that. You didn't make, you know, um, there's a pandemic. Should you be receiving all your rents? You know, the easiest way is for the government essentially just to pay the rents of the people that are laid off. And then, 
you know, I guess this brings up a host of political issues on how well you can do this. And it's hard. It's not trivial to allocate the money in that way by any means. Um, but I guess I, for one example, would be um, okay with it, you know, not being exactly and perfectly done, mm -hmm. um, which is better than, you know, disenfranchising people um, because we're trying to prevent a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been an amazing conversation. And um, I think, you know, as I, I know you sent me a copy of the book, I'm going to die. I've already read some of it, but we'll, I'll finish reading the entire thing and I'm sure I'll have, you know, a raft of other questions and, you know, conversations we can explore, but you know, I appreciate your taking the time. If uh, somebody wants to follow up with you uh, and discuss this more, how can they reach out to you? Right. So I'm on Twitter at Carrie W. King. Um, and my website is CarrieKing.com. So you can go there. You can, if you really want to pester me, you can yeah, find my email at the University of Texas uh, website and directory. So uh, public state employee, my email is not, not hidden. Um, Very good. So those are, yeah. Those are the ways to keep up. Is the uh, is the book available on your website? I have links to uh, yeah. Go to the Springer uh, publisher site, but you can get okay. it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Any any of you, the the fine um, internet based bookstores are so yeah purveyors. So you can go there and uh, you can buy it from from any anybody online. And even Sounds local good. Bo local bookstores can order it for you as well. Sounds good. I'll uh, I'll put a link into the uh, the podcast description so people can uh, can get a copy and read up but definitely um you know it's good to see the uh, you know there's a uh, running joke in social science uh, that uh economists were created to make weathermen look good so uh, <laughs> so it's amazing to see the 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 work that you do and how it actually connects to real life and being able to describe and let alone model and you know, act in a predictive way to help people make better descriptions. So it's, it's right. Good. Thank you. This, this hurricane season put the weathermen to, to work. So it, did, to it, work. it still is. It still yeah. is actually <laughs> yeah. crazy. So uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Carrie. Uh, okay. Care. Thank you. Thank you.